The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from WarbirdRadio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at WarbirdRadio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plain Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at plainecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended. I remember some men started prying and others started crying um, partway through it. One guy got to his feet and started to run. I was scared and let that be no secret. Next thing they set the spandar up there and they opened up. And there's bloody trees, bits of trees flying. And... New Zealand tanks were over the other river and one of our men said to them, he said, don't start your tanks up. For five minutes, we'll be out of it. Well, some silly bugger started his tank and the Germans put over a shell and right in the middle of the bridge. It was a bitterly cold morning and I scratched down in this damn hole and it took me two days before I could stand up straight again. Hear the stories of New Zealanders in the Italian campaign in World War II. The Courage and Valor podcast. www.newzealandersatwar.com Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. This is one of the Wings Over Australia episodes. Tomorrow, part one. For years and years, I'd heard about Tomorrow. I'd read about it, I'd seen photographs, I'd seen reports on the internet, and it always looked like it was, of any air show in Australia, the one I'd like to go to the most, because it focuses primarily on warbirds, which is my main interest. And I was very pleased when James Kitely and... Grant McKeeran came up with the idea of Wings Over Australia that the main focus of the tour was really to get me to the Tamora Airshow. 
or Warbirds Down Under, as it is called. I'd never been to an overseas air show before, and uh, this really would have been the one that I'd like to go to in Australia. So uh, absolutely thrilled to have been there now and to have experienced uh, what Tomorrow had to offer and uh, uh, see some aircraft and some displays that I would never have seen here in New Zealand. So, um, And, you know, what an amazing place too. Uh, what they've done there with their museum is fantastic. Uh, the collection is really neat and, and the fact that aircraft come from all over Australia to be there for the air show it's a real credit to them uh, highlights for me um, number one highlight had to have been seeing the Hudson flying I've always wanted to see a Lockheed Hudson flying since when I was in the Air Force I used to talk to a few Hudson veterans uh, at the Air Force Museum and that really inspired me about the, the type it's it's quite an amazing aircraft in RNZ Air history as well as Royal Australian Air Force history so yeah that that for me absolute highlight to see that flying um, and also it was great to see a few other types that I'd never seen in the air before such as the uh, the the CAC boomerang uh, what what an interesting aircraft it's a whole different sound from what I was expecting and a really neat airplane uh, another huge highlight uh, was definitely seeing the F4U5N Corsair in the air. I was very familiar with that particular aircraft because it used to be at Wigram when I was in the Air Force and it was basically right outside the door of my workshop. Stored there for a couple of years, I used to see it every day when I went to work and, yeah, and quite often I'd sort of walk around it, have a good close look at it, thinking oh gosh I wish somebody would restore this thing instead of it sitting here. And uh, now I've seen it in the air, and it's so impressive. It's um, yeah, very very cool. What what a neat experience to be able to see that and put through a fantastic display as well. Uh, and of course, another huge highlight was seeing a CAC Saber uh, in the air. Um, Jeff Trappett's Saber. That was that was. Yeah, really neat, um, particularly because I've heard so much about the Sabre from my good friend Noel Cruz, uh, who has appeared on the Wings Over New Zealand show many times, and uh, talking about the Sabre, as many of you will know. Uh, gosh, there were so many other aircraft there too that were great to see, and you know, a lot of them compared, you know, with New Zealand, you, that similar similar things as we see in New Zealand, and then uh, aircraft types that we'll probably never see here. So. Um, yeah, a, a good balance. I think the downside for me, in particular, was the weather. Uh, I've never, ever been so hot in my life. Uh, and I can't believe that was only their springtime. I mean, it was 42 degrees at some, uh, you know, one stage there. It was 42 degrees Celsius. That is damn hot. I mean, in New Zealand, it get, it's getting hot if it gets to 30. So, no, I was... I was literally shutting down. I, I really wasn't enjoying that. And the Friday was particularly worse because they also had a 40 knot wind that was blowing that 40 degrees straight in your face. And uh, as a result of that, some of the flying on the Friday was curtailed because the wind was too high. Uh, they did get the evening show in, which was, yeah, pretty good. It was, uh, you know, it was windy, but it was good to see the evening show. Um, I th I've seen evening shows here in New Zealand uh, at Amaka and the evening show is always neat. This one was particularly neat because I got to see you know a few a few acts that I wouldn't have seen in New Zealand like the roulettes who are quite impressive. 
very very reminiscent of what the red checkers used to do in their display and i'm looking forward to seeing new zealand's new team with the texan twos uh, because i think it'll it'll probably be very comparable with what the roulettes do if not better so that's going to be great and uh yeah, uh, another another highlight of that uh, evening show was seeing the uh, Southern Knights Harvard team, or Texan team as they may like to call it, because only the day before I'd flown up to Timora from Albury with Steve Deeth and his Texan, and uh, it was really neat to see him displaying, and it's quite good to see a, a, an evening display in that type. It was almost an identical display to what we see here in New Zealand with the Roaring Forties uh, Harvard team, but... Uh, uh, but seeing it in the the sort of evening gloom, it was uh, yeah a little bit different with the lights on and everything. It was pretty cool. Yeah, the the only other downside is some of the acts, and not all of them, but some of them were quite high and quite far away, which we're not really used to here in New Zealand because we like to have uh, low close air shows, um, as many Australians know, um, and that's why they come here all the time to places like Wanaka and Omaka uh, and Masterton to see the close low flying safe close low flying I should say there's always risks in flying but there's not it's not a risky display because all the safety is put into it as well but uh, unfortunately in Australia the regulations are a bit different so yeah some of the, some of the acts were a little bit too far away <laughs> for my liking um, and most Kiwis will tell you exactly the same thing um, it's just not what we're used to so but uh yeah other than that no great air show it was uh full on it was quite tiring by the end of it and um because of the wind in the field uh unfortunately our plans to do a lot of recording in the field with people wandering around we just couldn't do it because the wind was too high for the microphones and uh yeah actually we we spend a lot of the time hiding away in an air-conditioned room. <laughs> I was uh, very grateful of the fact that uh, Bevan Jews, who's from here in New Zealand, a good mate of mine, um, actually had an air-conditioned apartment there and uh, we could actually hide away in there because Bevan and I were both melting coming from New Zealand. It was it was no it was no good out there in that 40-knot, 40-degree, 40-something degree heat. Um, <laughs> so uh, um, the... The interview that you'll hear with Bevan a little later is uh, basically us hiding in the air conditioning. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. Coming up in this episode, we've got a, we've got some of the interviews that, that we did get there. Uh, I talked with uh, Mark Arwad of the Australian Warbird Association, and uh, and I also talked with Bevan Jews, who's uh, a very interesting young pilot here in New Zealand, and um, he was over there at Tamora as a volunteer helping out on the flight line when when the flying started and uh also uh james and i caught up with stuart wilson the well-known author editor and publisher and uh, so i hope you enjoy these interviews coming up i'm talking with mark arwood of the australian warbirds association hi mark hi how are you dave great great can you tell us a little bit about the association and what you guys do well, the Australian Warbirds Association is a uh, group of 520 uh, warbird owners, operators, and enthusiasts. We are uh, both a self-administering organization and a uh, an organization for the um, uh, enthusiasts and uh, operators of warbirds to uh, create some uh, camaraderie and, uh, and and organize uh, events and operations and. 
I mean, in our capacity as a self-administering organization, we have several delegations from the Civil Aviation Safety Authority uh, to issue certificates of airworthiness, administer adventure flight operations, uh, and manage systems of maintenance. And uh, we've uh, we've been doing quite well with that and uh, going from strength to strength over the last few years. Right. And do you do any uh, training of pilots to come through from, you know, maybe civil training through into warbird stuff as well? Well, we, we don't. We have uh, a number of our pilots, of course, our instructors, and we do encourage uh, members of, uh, you know, aviation enthusiasts and pilots that are not members of the Warburg community to uh, take a look at what we have to offer. I think uh, we're, we're at pains to point out that uh, Warbird ownership is not as exclusive as it may seem initially. Uh, a lot of our aircraft that we uh, we love and and, and uh, share with the public are in fact uh, ex-trainers and they have uh, they are challenging aircraft to fly but they're nothing that a competent, air, uh, competent pilot can't manage. Uh, so we do actively encourage uh, pilots to, to take a look at us and uh, take a look at the Warburg community and, and uh, help us grow in that regard. Uh, and then we can point them towards training opportunities from there. Uh, but the association itself, other than um, getting involved in formation uh, uh, training and competency, uh, we don't get into uh, ab initio Warbird training. Right. Um, now in New Zealand, a lot of the warbirds are syndicate owned, uh, so that you know it makes it a lot cheaper for individuals. They can uh, go in as a group to buy an aircraft. Does, does that happen here in Australia? Well, it does to a smaller degree. The the, the uh, New Zealand warbird movement has a lot going for it that we uh, here in Australia have looked at and said it would be great to emulate that. And if we can, uh, because uh, uh, those of you in New Zealand have really, I think, uh, done a great job of. of uh, building that camaraderie and uh, leveraging, as you say, the individual uh, or the collective owner's uh, power to purchase, uh, for instance, a V-12 aircraft, uh, whereas one person would have a struggle doing it. You get a 10 or 12 or 15 owners in there and suddenly it's affordable and achievable. Yeah, I think it's a fantastic outcome and uh, we are encouraging it. There are a couple of, uh, of well-run syndicates here, particularly up at Caboolture. Uh, in Queensland, and it's uh, something that we are uh, considering as an association, um, uh, considering sort of kickstarting that, if you will. Uh, we might, uh, and this is just a possibility, we might look to purchase an aircraft and build a syndicate from there okay. and bring in owners. Uh, I think it's just uh, a matter of really pushing it and finding the right people that would be interested in joining. Right, okay. So how many Warbird uh, air shows do you guys uh, attend each year, around about? Well, obviously with Australia being a much uh, larger country, it's, it's difficult for us to get to a lot of the shows. Um, that's, that's one thing I think we will always be envious of New Zealand on, is, is the um, uh, proximity of a lot of the shows that you have. Right, right. Uh, and, uh, of course, the uh, beautiful... Um, settings that they occur in Absolutely. and um, here in Australia we're, we're much more spread out so as an association uh, having an official presence it's difficult to be at everything we do have a large number of shows and fly-ins uh, throughout the year and uh, some of our members will be at most if not all of them uh, so we'll, we'll have uh, usually a warbird presence at them in one capacity or another now certainly the major shows such as this one here at Tamora 
um, and um, uh, a few of the others we, we try and have an official presence at and really work to promote the association to the, uh, uh, the public and uh, other aviation uh, communities. Uh, so the, the Australian warbird uh, fan may go from airshow to airshow and see a different group of warbirds at each one, unlike New Zealand where it's usually the same guys going to the um, different airshows. Well, that's quite true. Uh, I don't know what the numbers are in terms of warbirds in uh, New Zealand, but I would imagine we might have a larger uh, collection in this country. We have roughly uh, 300 warbirds uh, that um, uh, may turn up at, you know, at any one fly-in or air show. Uh, so it is, uh, you, you may see a few of the same ones, but uh, there's a very large uh, possibility that you're going to see different aircraft at, uh, at different events, which is, which is a really, um, I guess, uh, it, that, that is a bonus of, of being such a large country. Uh, coming from the U.S., uh, that was also uh, something there in the States. I mean, just the sheer volume of warbirds up there. Uh, plus the um, number of air shows, the sheer volume of air shows, and uh, the large uh, geography involved meant you would see a lot of different aircraft at different events. Right, and uh, can you actually tell me a little bit about your own um, personal background and how you got into aviation? And well, I'm uh, I'm mid 40s right now. I just turned 46, and I uh, am that age that uh, was heavily influenced by Top Gun back in the 80s, and. Uh, I wanted to be a uh, Navy pilot back then, and unfortunately, my eyesight was was a bit below what they would take. You know, what what's, when they have a uh, uh, absolute surplus of, of of candidates, they raise those standards right up. So, unfortunately, that never uh, came to pass for me. But I never lost my love for aviation and for warbirds in particular. I love the uh, the sights and sounds of them. I mean, it just it's, it's almost indescribable, and I think a lot of your uh, listeners would agree that it's hard to put a finger on where the passion comes from, but, but I've definitely uh, never lost that, and as soon as I was able to, to uh, commit to fl uh, uh, flight lessons and really get into aviation, I uh, did that, and I made the uh, quickest transition over to Warbirds that I could possibly do. Okay. I own and operate a windjeel, CA-25 windjeel, up uh, in northern New South Wales out of Ballina. It's uh, another member of our family, really. We absolutely love it. It's a beautiful airplane, and, and uh, I have uh, experience in the Harvard uh, T-6 uh, SNJ family and the uh, uh, Boeing Stearman as well. Um, I would love to find my way into something... Uh, bigger and faster someday but I'm perfectly content where I am and very uh, cognizant of the fact that I'm very lucky to get to fly them and uh, I, I, my passion for warbirds hopefully carries over into uh, my job for the warbirds association and uh, I, it's my hope that that is helping grow the association um, I'm leading a great group of individuals that uh, we we are really realizing our common ground here we've had some challenging times through the years, but the last couple of years we've gone from strength to strength and are uh, growing very rapidly, and uh, I'd like to see it continue. Yeah, absolutely, and I'm really impressed with the, the lineup you've got here at Tamora with all these amazing warbirds here. I mean, what's, what does Tamora mean to you guys? Well, Tamora, to, at least from my perspective, is one of the most unique uh, warbird collections in the world. It's, it's got some incredibly unique aircraft here, um, a mix of Australian, uh, British, and uh, American 
warbirds. It's uh, very the, the uh, uh, museum has been been set up uh, in an excellent uh, manner. I think it, it, it's very cognizant of the history that um, our aircraft represent and, and sharing that history with the general public. And they have a um, very unique capacity to uh, to do it in a very professional manner here. So it's an air show that I think is the premier event in Australia. Uh, they're certainly a bigger air show, but I think in terms of uh, targeted towards, uh, the, um, I guess, the general public rather than the uh, rather than industry, this is really a show for the public to share warbirds with the public, and it is about warbirds, and that makes it a uh, the premier event for uh, for our association. Um, my my only complaint is they only have it every two years, right. but uh, but we certainly understand why, and it, it's a it's a great uh, event, and we all look forward to it. Is there anything else that you want to sort of get out there to the public about uh, Australian warbirds or the association? Well, I would just like to reiterate again. Uh, like to say thank you very much to the Tamora Aviation Museum for being a uh, strong supporter of the Warbirds Association. And uh, we have an excellent relationship with them, and we hope to continue that into the future. They are obviously members, and uh, we support what they are doing wholeheartedly. Uh, I would also like to uh, say that, um, again, the Warbirds community is a very friendly, fun community. We're, we're uh, industry leaders in safety, in uh, formation flight training. And we have a lot of fun, we're high visibility, we fly some incredible planes and we get to share them with the public and it's a real honor and privilege to be able to do that. Uh, I would like to encourage a lot of uh, people in aviation or enthusiasts to look at us and, and consider joining and supporting the association so that we can uh, continue to grow and uh, share our beautiful warbirds with a larger community. Uh, I guess have more and more opportunities to share the uh, warbirds. Yeah, absolutely. And we, and we uh, always get a lot of Australians come across to our big air shows and it would be great to see more Kiwis coming over here and seeing what you had to offer as well, I think. It really would. We, uh, we I, I, I know there's a friendly little trans Tasman rivalry from time to time, but I think the warbird community, we are really... Uh, uh, tight-knit uh, yet very open um, the Kiwis have a wonderful thing as I said you know you guys have some fantastic aircraft over there fantastic uh, pilots and, and uh, members and, and we have a lot we can learn from from uh, those of you over there and we would love to see more of you here and, and uh, we would encourage you to get in touch with the Warbirds Association and uh, you know if, if any members are coming over get in touch with us and we'd be happy to uh, to help you out with some contacts and uh, Put you in touch with some members if you're anxious to uh, to see some warbirds or uh, experience a flight or two over Australia. Okay, and where can they find you uh, online? Uh, our website is uh, at australianwarbirds.com.au, uh, and we are currently in the process of um, uh, creating a new website. Our website's uh, quite good right now, but we're we're looking to uh, create a new one that has a lot more functionality for our members. Uh, so that will. Uh, hopefully be up and running in the next uh, few months. It seems to uh, be 90% done and uh, you know we kind of have, uh, have had a bit of a hard time getting at that extra 10% of the way but we'll get there. Right. Um, but uh, yeah certainly visit uh, australianwarbirds.com.au and uh, feel free to get in touch with uh, myself or any of us uh, in the leadership. Our contact information is on the website there and uh, we'd love to hear from you. 
Excellent. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you, Dave. And at this point, as I mentioned earlier, with the heat and the wind, uh, I moved inside with Bevan Jews and we sat down to have a bit of a chat. Uh, and James joined us halfway through. I'm uh, talking with Bevan Jews. Hi, Bevan. Hi, Dave. How's it going? Great, great. Now, um, you're a young Kiwi pilot who's had a really big year, aren't you? I sure have. I've been very fortunate. <laughs> um, tell me, what's been going on? Um, so earlier in the year, in February, I've been very fortunate this year. I've been to Avalon with the World War One guys. We took 10 World War One airplanes over there and UK for three months. And at the moment, I'm at the Timor Air Show. It's, uh, it's quite neat that you've... Uh You've been covering a lot of ground and, um, you know, a couple of those shows you've been flying as well. Oh, yeah, it's been absolutely amazing, really. I, I don't think I was expecting to do even a quarter of what I've managed to do this year. It's just been exceptional, really. Let's go back to, to Avalon. Uh, give, give us a, a bit of a brief o- overview of uh, what you, you personally were doing there and what, what uh, the Vintage Aviator was doing there. So we took 10 aeroplanes over to Avalon and we were over there for three weeks so it took us a week to put the airplanes together and I was helping on the ground for that and then a week for the air show and then a week to pack the airplanes back down again and thankfully we only had to bring eight home we left two over in Australia so yeah that made life a lot easier yep yep and you were flying there no unfortunately I wasn't flying for that show I was just helping out on the ground it's a, it's a big job though at an air show, just being uh, one of the groundies. Well, it was a huge job um, being there on, on the ground at Avalon. There's, there's a lot of ground to cover, so you're always running around, and there's a lot of propellers to be swung. So unfortunately, we don't have that many guys on the ground that can swing the propellers, so yeah, it gets busy. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, now, you. You mentioned you went over to the UK as well a little bit after that. Yeah, so I ended up in the UK for what was supposed to be a five-week trip. <laughs> and I kept extending and extending, and I ended up being there for just short of three months. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us what sort of uh, aviation activities were you getting up to? So we took uh, two aeroplanes over with the Vintage Aviator, SOP with Snipe, and an Albatross D5A, which we put together at Shuttleworth and we ended up leaving the aeroplanes at Stowmarie's, which is a World War One airfield in Essex, and it's got all the original World War One buildings and everything there. It's a pretty amazing, amazing airfield. It's like, it really is just stepping back in time. Everything's there. Wow. And at that one, at that airfield, you actually did get to do some flying. Yeah, I did get to do some flying. I flew, um, I did three flights in a BE-2 over there, so we took the two BEs to the UK last year and just left them there um that was absolutely amazing experience world war one airfield centenary of world war one world one airplane and being the same age as the guys were 100 years ago kind of puts things in perspective a bit as to how it would have been absolutely you're doing it uh, quite different things from most 21 year olds uh, around the country and uh, <laughs> you know that's that's quite neat that you're getting to experience things that are both historic in their own right and also um, that reflective part of the his- history as well. Yeah exactly I was to be honest I just can't really believe that I am doing what I'm doing it's everyone else that's helped me get there to, 
but to be able to almost recreate the history is a pretty special thing to be able to do. Tell me about the BE2. These ones in England were BE2Es, weren't they, that you took over? Yeah, they were. So um, we had two BE2Es, which are reproduction aeroplanes. So everything is exactly as it was during World War One, but just new built. Pretty much a continuation of the original aeroplanes. Yeah, and you get uh, all dressed up in the original flying costume and you're at an original airfield and you're flying in those same skies it's uh, yeah that's pretty amazing but when you look back and see the photos and you put them into black and white it really is just as it was yeah yeah and uh from there around the uk you, you saw a few other things as well yeah so i was fortunate enough to spend uh, about two months with john remain at duxford and helping out in the hangar there, which oh, it is an absolutely amazing place. I don't think there's anywhere else you could go, and there's 12 airworthy Spitfires based on the airfield, or at least 12. I didn't actually count how many there were, yeah. but you had all the other fighters in. It's just absolutely amazing. You were there during the, the big celebrations for the uh, 75th anniversary of the Battle of Britain. Tell us about that. Yeah, the 75th anniversary of Battle of Britain was unintentionally probably the best year I could have gone. I don't think we'll ever see again. At Goodwood, for example, we had 25 Spitfires and 6 Hurricanes and the Blenheim all parked up together and doing a big stream takeoff and disappearing off in their flights was pretty impressive sight to see and then 17 Spitfires at Duxford for the September show absolutely amazing so you mentioned the Blenheim there now the Blenheim's another aircraft that you've uh, managed to get up close and personal with yeah so I was fortunate enough to ride in the Blenheim in the turret when we went to the Cosby air show so that's just north of Duxford and the when you're sitting up in the turret of a Blenheim with that little wee 303 and the Bouchon goes flying past, you think, <laughs> I'm a goner. <laughs> like, it's just, yeah, the poor buggers back in World War Two, they really were kind of <laughs> on a suicide mission. Yeah, absolutely. I've talked to a lot of guys who, um, who, who flew in those... Uh, early days and a few of them were in the Blenheims and some of the some of the stories of bravery were just remarkable and they, they to them it was just everyday thing because that was the latest yeah um, exactly you know, but looking back they were even at the beginning of World War Two, they were fairly outdated but when they were first flying in about 1936 they were kind of almost the fastest things out and we were clipping along at 195 miles an hour just cruising which I was quite surprised at. I thought well, we were going to be going a bit slower than that, but fair moves. Is it comfortable in that turret? Um, it is quite comfortable once you get into the turret. Um, you certainly wouldn't want to be in there on a hot day. It'd be like an incinerator, but when you're up high, I'd imagine it would be fairly cold. You'd want to have a, a big jacket on, so the wind just blows straight down your back. Okay, well. 
And just the usual, um, with the Blenheim one, the usual crew would have been two people? Um, I'm pretty sure the British flew it with three and the Canadians, I believe, flew it with two. Okay. Yeah. And the, and the, the Mark one is the, uh, the sort of flat nose, glass nose version. Yeah, the short nose. A lot of people were apprehensive about that in the beginning, but when you actually see it in person, it looks absolutely fantastic. I, I agree. I've always thought it was actually the, the, the better looking of the of the two. It sort of looks more purposeful. And yeah, the the four looks a bit kind of bulbous and uncanny in a way. It, and apparently it's also a bit slower than the early one. Yep, I've definitely heard that from the veterans as well. And... Uh, you know, to me, it almost looks a bit like a platypus, the Mark IV. <laughs> yeah, you could say that. <laughs> um, so, when you're sitting up in the turret, what's the what's the view like from the uh, from the Blenheim turret? So, from the turret, you really are sitting pretty much on top of the aeroplane. So, a full 360 degrees is pretty much perfect. You, you just if you saw a group of 109s coming in, you'd soon know they were going to be there. Right, right. And of course, you've only got a 303 gun. That's yeah, not, exactly. not going to be much of a defence, is no, it? No, exactly. You're, you're going to be struggling a little bit with that. So in the in the cockpit itself, or in the fuselage, is the forward visibility quite good? When you're up the front, like if you were flying it, the visibility is fantastic. But down the back, there's no windows or anything. There's only a little wee porthole in the bottom escape door that you can see the ground whistling past as you when you're sitting in the seat for takeoff and landing right. do you take off in the um so you take off down below and yeah climb yeah up into the turret and so take off and landing you sit down in the seat inside the fuselage and then once you're up away from the ground jump up into the turret cool that's all hydraulically operated it's fantastic so in the space of a couple of months, you went back in time to World War One, and then you went back in time to World War Two. And um, which of the, based on those experiences of, of those aircraft, um, which would you have preferred to have gone to war in at that time against the, the, the kind of um, adversaries you would have come up against? Um, well, I certainly wouldn't want to go to war in a BE two, so we flew um, a little bit of a dogfight mission with an albatross. And you, until you do that, you don't realise how much of a sitting duck you are. You are absolute toast. There's just no question about it. You're dead. Um, and a Blenheim, <laughs> I think you're pretty much the same. <laughs> so that's a bit of a tough call. I'd much rather go to war in a Spitfire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of the uh, the Blenheim's like the. Uh... Um, 1940 equivalent of the yeah, yeah, yeah really? exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, and then you know you've also had some other experiences this year. I know at Easter I saw you flying in a seven, eight, nine ship formation of uh, Fokkers. That was pretty neat. Yeah, that was absolutely fantastic. I wasn't really expecting to do that, but um, we had eight Fokker triplanes and a Fokker D7 in formation, which I. Th- believe is the biggest formation of Fokker aeroplanes since World War One. Well, Fokker triplanes anyway. Yeah, definitely. Um, so that was very special to be involved with. And yeah. You're very modest about it all, and um, I think that's, you know, really is one of the 
endearing things about you, Bevan, is that you're very quiet and modest about it all, but you know, you're doing amazing things, and there's a lot of pilots out there who'd be loved to, loving to do what you're doing, I reckon. Yeah, that, that's the thing. I find I almost get ahead of myself sometimes. You really have to step back and pinch yourself and think, well, what are most other 21-year-olds doing? And, yeah, I think even guys that are 40 or older, they haven't had the chance to be able to do what I've done. And uh, to be honest, if it wasn't for all the guys that have been supporting me, I wouldn't be doing it. So it's really them that you got to thank. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's very um, very well put. Uh, now, here's a question for you. Regarding the air shows in New Zealand that you've flown at and, and also, you know, done ground ops and, and just as a, as a punter, and then you've you've done it in Australia, um, ground ops at least, and and you know been a a viewer of the shows, and then you've gone around England to a few of the shows, and, and you've flown some displays there. What are the what are the differences, the points of difference, and and what are the things that stand out for you from each of the um, air shows around those countries? Um, well, I th- would say for pure enjoyment for an air show I don't think you can go past a New Zealand air show if you want to see variety and sheer number of airplanes the UK is fantastic well, I'm a little bit biased this year because you, it's not every year you're going to see 17 Spitfires flying together but it's absolutely amazing and Australia again there's not well, I'm yet to see the tomorrow show, but there hasn't been the warbirds displaying as much that I've seen, um, and it's extremely hot, yeah. <laughs> unbelievably hot. It's what 41 degrees at the moment. So, so you, you say that New Zealand's got the sheer enjoyment of an issue. Is that from, yeah. from the 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 sort of the viewers' point of yeah, view? Yeah, I'd say from the viewers standpoint I'd say a New Zealand air show would probably have to be one of the better ones um, the UK if, say a Flying Legends show or the September Battle of Britain show ugh, absolutely amazing like, I'd be back there in a heartbeat yeah, I'd, yeah, they're probably equivalent I would have to say Is that for the adrenaline factor or um, just the, the wow amazement factor or um, everything really it's just you you won't see half the airplanes anywhere else you won't see a blenheim anywhere else you won't see multiple hurricanes or spitfires gladiators the hawker biplanes are pretty impressive um australia again i haven't really seen a, a big warbird show avalon is really mainly heavy metal and yeah a, a fantastic show for big heavy metal aeroplanes but I'm a little again biased cause I'm mainly into the <laughs> war birdies <laughs> aeroplanes yeah, yeah. Um, and you've you've spent a bit of time at uh, Shuttleworth too haven't you so what, what, are you, what are your impressions of Shuttleworth Shuttleworth is absolutely amazing their setup is fantastic I probably saw four or five Shuttleworth shows while I was there I think the show I enjoyed the most was their flying proms 
which is an afternoon, evening sort of show, and they have a lot of the displays to live music, and then afterwards live music and fireworks. And for a family kind of evening, it, you just can't beat it. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, so we've just been talking a bit about you flying in the in the Blenheim, but uh, you've actually flown an even more interesting aircraft in aviation history, the Spitfire. Very lucky man. I was fortunate enough to fly in a Spitfire after one of the Battle of Britain flypasts we did um, from Humberside. We had 15 Spitfires there, and I was lucky enough to go f- for a fly in the two-seat Spitfire on the way back to Duxford. And what an experience. The takeoff, I guess, is the f- most kind of exhilarating part of the whole flight. The vibration, acceleration, smell, it's just everything's there. And then you get airborne, and it's pretty much like a chipmunk on steroids. It just flies fairly similar to a chippy. It's a little bit heavier on the controls, but I mean, the energy is obviously hugely more than a chipmunk. Yeah. But um, going out on the way back to Duxford, we did some aerobatics, just mainly loops and rolls and big uh-huh. wingovers. And the thing just climbs like an angel. It's like, it just you put the nose up and it it just keeps going like you'd never expecting it to stop. And yeah, it's just a really lovely airplane to fly didn't really want the trip to end <laughs> yeah, <I agree laughs> just we can really. all understand that i'm sure anybody yeah. else uh, in that position would, would feel the same and um so just to clarify that so one of the two seaters which wasn't a wartime modification for those that might not know um and uh you were is it one of the high back two seaters with the bubble uh, canopy yes uh, the high back spitfire was the one that i went in and compared to i haven't flown in a low back one yeah but you just can't see anything out the front of a low back one. The yeah. the high back, as much as it looks ugly as sin, it is fantastic. You can you've got a brilliant view out the front, yeah. so you can really fly the yeah. fly the thing from the back. It's just brilliant. Yeah. Perfect and for training. How did you find the room? We were actually talking to Steve Deeth in another podcast, and Steve's a big boy, and we're just talking about how he fits in, in Spitfire. I, I said, I don't know how you fit in a Spitfire, Steve, and he says, not actually that hard for him. Mm. Um, but uh, how did you find the room? Because they're a little smaller, the two-seaters, aren't they, the cockpit? Um, I found them, I'm not exactly a big guy, but I found them fantastically roomy, really. Uh-huh. A Spitfire, you can lift the seat up and down, you can move the rudder pedals forward and back, so ergonomically you can get it to f- to fit you yeah. I, just, I had to sit in the bouchon and that thing is about as unergonomic and terrible for seating position as you could get yeah. I mean if you either sit with your head kind of cocked over to one side or your knees around your ears <laughs> and of course they, the, 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 that's got a Merlin engine the G model which is the same airframe mm. you actually had the breach of the cannon between your feet as well so it's even, exactly. more, uh, even more scary so obviously that would have been one of those great trips of a lifetime would you like to spend a bit more or would, you, would you work towards getting more Spitfire time given the chance well that flight really did reinforce the dream of flying fighters I mean, yep. I've yeah. known you for a while now, and you've been talking for a long time that your big dream was to get into the World War Two fighters, and I'm yeah. so glad that you've you've done that now <laughs> and and had a fly and and I can tell that you know this is the thing you really want, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, 
that's two completely types of flying, uh, completely different types of flying. The World War One and World War Two. The World War One is, um, well, I don't know how you would. It's almost difficult to put into words. It's not like flying any other aeroplane. It's you've got say tricycle undercarriage and then tail draggers, and then flying the World War One aeroplanes is almost a different step again. Yeah. Unbelievably draggy, underpowered, and everyone has got its little quirks. Lots of different challenges that you wouldn't face in a modern aeroplane. No brakes, no real instruments, and yeah, it's just a fantastic. Just to pick you up a bit on that, because it's a fascinating air. I'm very interested in um, as a, as a non non pilot and reading up a lot recently on the RE8, for instance, for mm. um, uh, some writing we were doing and. Um, as you say, no brakes, but of course those aircraft were intended to be operated on a round field directly into wind. The skid was your brake. Um, you know, they were built for the job to the... And again, it's important we don't forget they were the F-22, the, the B-1 of their day. They were the most high level of technology of the year. We look back and they're, you know, um, uh, stick and string as the cliche has it. Um, but uh, that it is, I think it's really interesting you say that. It's a different kind of flying altogether to... World War Two type aircraft and, and modern lighter aircraft and when we did the box kite project we had some very experienced skilled test pilots and the most similar they had on their uh, experience was flying yeah, 19... well actually no, not even a tire, 1980s ultralights, those really scary primitive aeroplanes where people were rediscovering how to fly all over again and they were slow and they were draggy and they had quirks as you just said to quote your own words back. Um, and I think it's great that we're seeing a real revival in World War One. I. I mean, Spitfires are safe, aren't they? We're not worried about losing the last Spitfire. Um, but I think, thanks to New I Zealand, think particularly, the last one would be worried. absolutely. <laughs> but you know, it, they're, they're established; they're on the scene. But I think yeah. it's really down to New Zealand uh, to a great degree that, that we've had a real renaissance of, of, of World War One diversity. It's not just camels or SE fives now. Mm. It's with, you know, I was rapt to see a. But I think the first time we met was when you when you were in the um, the RE8 the RA flying into Point Cook. Is that yeah, that's right. right? On the delivery flight from Avalon. I must send a couple of photos of you <laughs> <laughs> arriving in that. But yeah, and that was that was very special. Um, what do you think about World War One flight? I mean, do you when you're flying them, are you thinking, well, these guys went to war in these aeroplanes? How did they do it? Or what do you think? Well, uh, you're almost thinking from two minds, really. It's for them. It was the best they had, and it would have been a great adventure for them, yeah. I imagine, or well, for the first time anyway. But once they knew what was coming, and if you're in a B2 or an RE8, and you're going up against Albatross and yeah. Fokker triplanes, any of that sort of stuff, I imagine it would have been almost sheer terror, I guess. Yeah. But when we look back at it now, we think, <laughs> what were they thinking? <laughs> going to war in these string bags. Yeah. It was a lot better option than going to war in the trenches. It's interesting, isn't it? And something that Dave and I have been talking a bit about on this trip is you know the war experience, and it's easy for, to see what we're doing is glorifying war, which is very much not what we're about. But you know, to look back and look hard at some of this stuff, um, very tough times. I think. We, I think. So where where do you see yourself going? You've got a little foot in different camps, haven't you? You've got the aerobatics, you've got uh, World War One flying, you've got uh, a bit of time in interesting World War Two fighters. If you have to choose, which way are you going to go? <laughs> I can't really. <laughs> I can't theory, really choose. You to commit. <laughs> but uh, that yeah, I can't really. No, that's <laughs> answer a, that's a good that. answer. It's, yeah. it's 
yeah both are absolutely amazing kind of eras of aviation huge development and technology you look at the beginning of world war one you've got a, a fokker eindecker or a little farman and then you get to the end of world war two and you got sopworth um snipes and fokker d8s yeah. it's a huge um technological development and even from the 30s to the end of world war two you're going from hawker biplanes yeah which are they were fantastic for the time, but and then jump up to Corsairs and Sea Furies and Tempests and first jets. Yeah, exactly, first jets. But uh, and with your um, uh, James was trying to ask where you want to go. Into, yeah, but you don't really have to go in any one direction. No, no, exactly. Question, really, yeah. isn't it, it is. Yeah. But there's there's so many options out there that, to be honest, I'm quite happy <laughs> to have foot feet in both doors. But, yeah, it's, yeah, you can't really answer that. <laughs> so, well, I think what, what is interesting in that then, and it's a, it's a good answer not answering it, it's definitely the best answer um, not to choose. It, it, you've had a great year. You've had all sorts of experiences. You've been to lots of different places um, around the world, seen lots of different flying, um, an awful lot of Spitfires, an lot awful lot of other great aeroplanes. Um, but uh, you're, a, you're a player yourself. You have your own chipmunk, uh, that your chipmunk display, sorry. Um, Talk us through what you what you do with the chippy. What's what's the display? So I had my first aerobatic display season last year with the Warbirds over Wanaka, and I've got a fairly basic routine to just to get me going, which basically consists of um, the straightforward manoeuvres of a Cuban eight to start with, yep. so that kind of gets you moving across the sky nice big wing over into a barrel roll and then coming back around for a, a loop and uh, another aileron roll and basically kind of a combination of those maneuvers yeah. and then a couple of passes at the end for photos yep. canopy, hey. up. canopy up passes yeah canopy up passes try and show the aeroplane off yeah. and give the crowd that's a lovely looking aeroplane the chipmunk so try and show it off to the best of and, and from your experience so far it's my, my understanding correct me um, not a lot of energy but nice sweet manoeuvring machine yeah you definitely have to be very on to energy management it, it is quite underpowered and chippy would be quite nice if it had an extra 100 horsepower <laughs> <laughs> as with most aeroplanes yes, yes. you can never have enough power yeah. but it's a great training aeroplane for aerobatics. If you can do a f- aerobatic display in a chippy, I think I think you should be fairly right. Once you get to the fighters or high performance aeroplanes, once you've got an understanding of energy management, in a way that shortage of power is good training because you know any fool can do really good aerobatics with loads of power and you know kicking the afterburner on the jet sort of thing. Whereas if you can manage the energy, and I think the the most impressive aerobatic displays from me not as a pilot, but I know a lot of my pilot friends rate that, is where something's in someone low, low, something low-powered, and they, 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 they use that loss of height through a display, but it's all happening. I mean, where you mm. see a really good glider display is a good example of that, and that, that I think, is um, more skillful in a way than, than sort of the, you know, the yanking and turning on the, you know, the really high-powered aerobatic, modern aerobatic types or the jets. 
Who, who do you um, look to as an inspiration um, for for your own routine? And mm. has it, did you work that up yourself, or has someone um, been a mentor with it? Um, so I worked my display up with Keith Skilling. I mean, you can't really get too much <laughs> more of an experienced warbird display pilot than Keith, especially in New Zealand. Mm. And yeah, he walked me through um, all the displays, and he did my low-level display authorization for me and yeah whenever I've got a question I always go back to Keith and that's actually it's interesting we were, we were talking about Keith in that context the other day as a, as a very and you're carrying forward a great tradition of aerobatic flying with, with him and I'd agree with you one of the definitely one of the great aerobatic warbird pilots too so were there things he told you to watch out for that you can share with us or things that you little tips or tricks um just don't really don't get too caught up in the moment make sure you're always concentrating on what you're doing you'll I find that if you concentrate on the display and you almost have to put the crowd out of your mind yeah. <clears throat> you just gotta concentrate on the job at hand and make sure you hit all your gates so speeds and heights yeah. and keep it as safe as you can don't yeah. take any unnecessary risks that's it and that's the that's a great principle for display flying in, in the big picture anyway and, and um, it's interesting what you say about sort of you know you it's a bit like golf in a way so you're always yeah. trying to do a better round next time aren't you yeah and make sure that even though there's you might feel the pressure to display if you're not happy with the conditions or things are getting too on top of you just pull the pin yeah yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, you don't want to pull the pin you want to be looking at more displays in the coming year in New Zealand and bringing your global experience and awareness uh, to bear so uh, if there in anyone interested in New Zealand and uh, displays in the chippy you're there um, give them a shout yeah, exactly um, it's a great privilege to be involved in the airshow scene and trying to get the experience to fly the aerobatic displays in New Zealand there's not too many opportunities to get into it so training up the young guys is there doesn't seem to be a, a whole lot of enthusiasm to get young guys into display flying so if, even from the experience that I've had if I can influence younger guys to get in and give it a go I think then I'm heading in the right direction but it also needs to come from air shows and other organisations that we need to support young guys coming through. Because it isn't, it certainly isn't a walk in the park trying to get into display flying. That's ridiculously expensive. Even a chippy, by the time you go out and do a lot of practice, get to the air show, and you've got all your expenses at the show and insurance and everything it is a very very expensive hobby <laughs> absolutely I, I'd, I'd cap on what you're saying there in that um, it's hard to get in and that's the same the world over um, there is a thing where you know oh we're putting a display together let's get name X because we know name X so to build your yeah. reputation is very hard uh, I think once once you're established in you know in a country then then it's it gets easier and obviously that we, we all know and we can think of a list of really well known aerobatic pilots or, 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 or uh, warbird pilots but it is hard to get the brakes in there and and I think in a way that the hard barrier to entry is is tough but once you've gone through it you've shown you've got the passion you've got the drive 
you've got the lack of money and fancy car because yeah, yeah. <laughs> you sacrifice. And another thing we've talked about in this is that, you know, if you really want it, you're going to be sacrificing other things. You're not partying, you're not out doing stuff a lot of the time because you, you're working hard, you're practicing routines and so on. And I think a lot of people see the glamour side of it and they don't see all of the hard work leading up to it. I've not met anybody in this game, and I include journalists as well. We get to do some fun stuff, but there's a lot of hard work people don't get to see behind it. And it's, a, it's certainly, as a pilot, with, a, with a, a regular routine, you have to work really hard to make that happen, I think. But one of the overwhelming factors, uh, just in this interview, that um, I have noticed is almost every question that I've put to you, you've said, I've been fortunate to such and yeah. such. And, and, you know, yes, you've been fortunate, but it's a, it is a combination of a lot of hard work. And you've been flying since you were 15, was it? Yeah, I started flying when I was 16. 16, yeah. Yeah, I didn't want to fly before that. It would have been torture not being able to go solo <laughs> so I decided <laughs> I'm not going to fly at all until I'm 16 <laughs> but I mean you you've come up through the ranks of uh, the guy who had the rag and the broom and in, in the in the hangar um, just cleaning up after everybody else and um, worked a hell of a hell of a lot um, over the years and it's not that many years really I mean it's only what five years that from starting to fly mm. to to now um uh, but that's what it is, it's hard work to get where you are and, and to persevere. Yeah, I mean, I've been a volunteer just with the Vintage Aviator as a good example. I've, as you said, I've started pretty much at the bottom, sweeping floors, mucking around, cleaning aeroplanes, up through uh, propeller swinging. I got my licence when I was 17. So was lucky enough to be able to escort the World War One airplanes up and down the country to air shows, which was a great help in building my hours up. And almost every time there's something happening with the vintage aviator, or even when there's nothing happening during the winter, every spare minute, hour I'm there helping out. It's always there's always something you can find to do, and I guess it's that that sort of dedication that has got me where I am, along with a lot of people helping me out on the way, including Jean. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, that'd be Jean DeMarco, wouldn't it? Um, I think it's a good point, and I'd just like to chip in here that um, you know, you're know you here, but I've seen you helping out, and you, I saw you ca- carrying a couple of crates of, of water bottles through, which I know a lot of other people in your, you know, wouldn't know, wouldn't, wouldn't turn their hand to that, not because they're uh, proud or lazy or anything, but just wouldn't think to do it, and you're putting in the hard yards and, and putting in the work. I think that's something that gets noticed. The other thing I notice, and I, I clean aeroplanes and help out, is that not breaking things. <laughs> you know, yeah, I get yeah, to yeah. an aeroplane I've not dealt with before. I think the first thing is not to break anything because they'll be very polite, but I'll never ever be allowed back, you know. Um, and that's actually quite a big thing, isn't it? You, you, the more involved you are, the easier it is to, to put a foot wrong, and the, the foot wrong on a fabric wing can be a big hole. Exactly. As- you always have to be thinking of situational <laughs> awareness. Even when you're sweeping the floor of a hangar, yeah. if you haven't got your hand over the end of the broom, it's so easy to put it through a wing. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, yeah. so right, there are, you can go backwards as well as forwards. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. The higher you are up the ladder, the further you've got to fall. <laughs> that too. But a, a great point just made there, I think, is also, and we've this has been this trip for us, Dave, hasn't it? It's, a, it's um, people helping each other and, and showing yeah. willing and passing on totally favours yeah. and and so on and we're, we're all here in a, in for different you know different ways but for that reason and uh, in a way it's a big team game um, and uh, we've talked with several people in Australia um, about how it's a close-knit community here and I know New Zealand is a close-knit community there which is you know both say both places people say in a good way which is which is great um, 
But yeah, so we've talked a little bit about the uh, the Spitfire, but you've travelled a lot this year. You've been to lots of different shows. You've flown in a Spitfire, flown in a Blenheim, which actually is rarer than a Spitfire. <laughs> there is only one flying Blenheim. Um, you've seen different displays and different people doing things differently around the world. Like, obviously, for those listeners who won't be familiar, like you, <laughs> just build that up a bit with this this global experience. Shuttleworth is a great great venue. Great, they've got a they've been doing it. The kind of shows they've been doing longer, pretty much than anyone else. So, I mean, they've been flying since the fifties, really, and then more seriously in the sixties. Um, they've been flying stuff like the box kite for over half a century. An aeroplane that you know didn't last for very long in service. Um, Stowe Marys you flew at, which is a fascinating new development of an original World War One field with you know World War One aircraft flying there. Um, vintage Aviator set up in, in New Zealand. Omarka, which is one of the great great venues of, of the world, I think. Um, anywhere with wineries in the background can't be all bad, can it, <laughs> in a wine tent? Um, what sort of things would you, and this is a very open question, but what would you pick up of really big highlights you think, these guys do this really well? Um, I'll give you a free one, and I think Shuttleworth works well because bent flight line, you've got a natural amphitheatre, there's an ambience, people bring out the picnics in the, in the paddock, and um, it's a nice setup in that way, isn't it? What's other things you notice? I think you've hit the nail on the head there with Shuttleworth. I mean, if you want a nice family event, Shuttleworth is the place to go. You get up close to the aeroplanes. The pilots are all generally there, and they're yeah. always willing to chat. Yeah. I think that's one of the big standout points for Shuttleworth is yeah. that you can talk to the pilots and you you can get close. Um, Duxford or any of those the big shows. I mean, the aeroplanes aren't close to you. You, yeah. you you've well separated from the aeroplanes. Um, the display line at Duxford is—it's almost a reverse curve. So you you're, you're yeah. almost further away from the aeroplanes <laughs> than <laughs> if you're in yeah. the middle of the display line than you are if you're on the ends. Yeah. Yeah, but they have to they have to bow away at, at Duxford from the ends of the flight line, so exactly as you say, and and that works against. And I think Amarco, one of the things they've got and you're very looking much into the with. sun. Yep, yep, having the sun on the right side's a, a big thing. Obviously, you can't move the sun, and you can't no, rebuild exactly. an airfield, but yeah, if you yeah, can arrange exactly. those things, that that helps. Um, what do you think? What would you say for people who haven't visited New Zealand shows, as we all have? What would you say would be real things that New Zealand you think gets right? Not a not a big you know show off in New Zealand, but there's a lot of you guys do really well. Um, again, I think New Zealand is similar in a way to the UK. We've got most of our air shows have got a nice curved display line, yeah. a fantastic scenery. I mean, you can't really get that much better than Wanaka and having the fighters roaring up the valley and there's a drop-off at the end of the runway at Wanaka and you can't see them coming, but you can hear them and then they just pop up out of yeah. out of the valley. And you can't really beat that. Um Omarka, the curved display line. You have the Corsair come screaming around the corner. That's just absolutely fantastic. Uh, We've also got a huge variety of aeroplanes in New Zealand. I don't think there's anywhere else in the world you could go and have 25 or 26 World War I aeroplanes, airworthy World War I aeroplanes, parked out the front, along with Kitty Hawks, Corsairs, or Corsair, and all the other fighters as well, I think. Yeah, it's just a 
great relaxed place to have an air show. That's a good, actually, that's a really good point. Something coming through in this conversation is that um, the environment you manage. So you use the actual physical environment well. I mean, famously, lots of pilots back in the day at Biggin Hill used to use the valley at Biggin Hill, and, and um, Ray Hanno is obviously a, a, a great proponent of that. Um, probably, probably New Zealand's greatest uh, uh, air display export. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, using the using the landscape, using the environment, which is a danger if you have a standard display. Is you go, okay, I do this. I do, you know, this is what I do, and you're not picking up where the cues are. Uh, obviously, you don't want to cut corners, but to do that. But I think something I would say is, and a visitor to New Zealand shows, it has been really, is really friendly, a great access. Um, people are always looking to make it a great experience. I think it's perhaps the New Zealand tourism thing of, you know, let's show our country off and so on, kicks over to the air shows. And I can say it because it's my, some other countries aren't as friendly as they should be in that, that way. Um, and it can be a bit of an us and them. And I think, again, pick up what you said, I think David agree, access to pilots and people involved is, is important. Um, I think little tip of the hat as we're uh, to our hosts here in their normal flying days rather than the big show they're having here a key component they have is uh, the aircraft flies and afterwards the pilot comes over and does a little talk the end of the flying day they um they rope off the aircraft but you right up to the rope the pilots stand with the aircraft and several of them i know are terrified by the kind of questions they're likely to get but they'll do their best to answer questions about the airplane they fly on and that's great because people want to meet the pilots and want to talk to them i think that's the meeting the pilot is probably one of the biggest things for encouraging younger people in. If you can get up close and see the aeroplanes and talk to the pilots and find out what it's like, I think that would encourage a lot more people into it. For most people, flying displays, you'd think, how on earth would you ever get to do that? Yeah, yeah. I'd I'd absolutely agree. It's something we... Something we have at the um, the Royal Air Force Museum uh, is that we do the regular flying displays there, and very much a key part of it is meet the pilot pilots to have a chat after the flying. Um, as you said, with Shuttleworth, I think Shuttleworth's done the new inside-out thing where they actually reverse a lot of the stuff and have stuff in the crowded space with people to talk to. But yeah, I, isn't it great that we've got these horrible barriers at lots of airfields now because of security, and you can't go and sit on your bicycle and sit on the fence and maybe get to push a broom or you know clean an aeroplane because the barrier is physical there. So we, it's even more important now that air shows give people access. And there is a danger. I think most of my pilot friends and colleagues would say that trying to de- just demolish that you know, magnificent men myth that you, you do special things. It's, everyone's human and it's hard to... You learn it. It takes time. It's a lot of energy. But it's, if people can get into it, they just need to want it, don't they? Exactly. I think there's a um, stereotype as well that to be a display pilot, you've got to be ex-military and... Yeah, uh, I mean, you look at the majority of display pilots, they have been ex-military, but there are also other ways and avenues of becoming a display pilot. You just have to want it enough. That's a very, I think it's a very good point. Um, you know, you go through the military route, you're automatically taught aerobatics and, and um, formation and other, you know, and, and uh, unusual attitudes, uh, unusual attitude recovery. All of those are additional to an ordinary PPL course. You wouldn't do those in a PPL anywhere in the world unless you buy it in. That's extra money you have to pay rather than, in our case, the Queen coughing up for it. So the civil route's viable, but it's more expensive and you've got to want it and know what you're looking for. But people do do it, yeah, and there's a lot of great, um, great non-military, ex-military uh, guys as well as the military guys, yeah. You're actually part of New Zealand's biggest air force anyway, aren't you, with the Vintage Aviator? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's... You have it's a very snazzy <laughs> uniform. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I think one of the interesting things about my background is that there is no aviation in my family. Yes. I'm the only one. And I think everyone asks me, how did, how did I get into it? Like, what sparked the aviation? Yeah. And I've got a photo of me when I was probably two, I guess, or maybe one and a half, something like that, sitting in my high chair out on the deck at our family farm watching a top dressing plane <laughs> so I think that must have had some influence that's a, very, that's a very New Zealand thing isn't it yeah. and I've, I've got a memory of when we went to Ohakia and visited I must have been oh, three I guess and the Skyhawks came ripping over <laughs> and it sent me to tears <laughs> I can I can remember that but uh, and going to Wings Over Warrapper I think my first air show was 2001 I was yeah. probably seven, I would say. So I haven't grown up with it from, like, absolutely day dot. Yeah. But being involved with the likes of the Vintage Aviator and growing up around Wings of a Warrapper, I think, has obviously been a huge influence in that, my that's direction. A, that's a really good point, uh, because around the world there are probably a few other uh, young pilots in your... Um, sort of position where they're 21 years old and they're flying air displays and working at air shows but most of them have fathers who were flying air displays and grandfathers who were flying air displays and or, or in, a, in, a, in a family environment as yeah, you say yeah. yeah yeah and you've come out of nothing and basically i remember you told me in the last interview we did that you walked across the road from the atc the air trading corps and just poked your head in the door at the vintage aviator and that's where it all started, isn't it, really, for that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. All I, all I wanted when I poked my head in the door, I was probably 13, I would say, at the time. All I wanted was a ride in the Kitty Hawk. And <laughs> well, that seems perfectly reasonable to us, right? That's all I wanted. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Sarah reminds me of it. She, she kind of manages the hangar side of it in Masterton. She reminds me of how much of a pain in the butt I was for the first year or two. <laughs> I finally managed to get a broom into my hand and <laughs> make me do some work. But obviously it's all paid off. And I mean, even now that I'm still flying, or I am flying the aeroplanes now, you still can't forget about the jobs that have to be done behind the scenes. I would spend, for every hour that I spend flying oh, I'd hate to think how many hours of <laughs> other ground work I'd do but there's, there's a lot of work to be done behind the scenes it's not just the glory of flying the aeroplanes yeah. Yeah. that's that's true and I've seen you in action at, at air shows completely running with sweat, you're stressed you're running after aircraft backwards and forwards in the heat and the pilot just wanders out and jumps in the plane and flies <laughs> yeah, off. Yeah. And, and then, and some, then, yeah. some pilots yeah, just yeah, wander yeah, out. Yeah, yes. And, you, and you, get, you get a bit of a break while he's away, and then he comes back and you're running yeah. around again. I've seen that, you know, how many times at air shows now. And, you know, you work a hell of a lot behind the scenes or, or as a groundie as well. Yeah, as I think as well as flying the aeroplanes, being on the ground, as much as it's kind of hard work, it's quite satisfying as well just seeing the aeroplanes up there flying and knowing that you had something to do with kind of getting them there that's a, that's a good point I mean uh, I think really good to talk about doesn't it don't have to have an aviation background and um, 
I've met a lot of people with all sorts of backgrounds. It, once you decide, I, th I think the big thing is you need to have the interest and the drive to, to do that. And what you're saying about you know being a little boy and um, getting excited by the, um, the airplanes. There's a great little anecdote actually from a, a BBC comedy program called Cabin Pressure, which I'll definitely recommend if you haven't come across it about a tiny airline. And one of the pilots asked the other pilot, you know, um, have you? It, what's the thing oh, I've always wanted to be well I always wanted to be a pilot um, since I was six and, and what did you want to be before that oh I wanted to be an aeroplane <laughs> <You know? laughs> it was always going to be aviation and I think um, I think that thing is if, if you meet someone or you know someone with that kind of spark or interest then and they're prepared to put drive behind it as well but the other bit in this mix that we haven't talked about is you must have done a lot of research and figuring out um, what you needed to do next. I mean, to, to get to fly aerobatics, you've got to put a number of ducks in a row, haven't you? And that's a very clear process. And we talked about, you know, Keith mentoring you and so on, but to pick the right guy, to pick, to, you can't just wander up to someone and say, hey, teach me. Um, what sort of research did you do and how do you, did your career develop in terms of what you're trying to do? Um, well, growing up, or well, having experienced the vintage aviator and being around the pilots there all the time, you, you always ask each individual one kind of what their thoughts are and yeah. what their little techniques are and even outside that group always talking to everyone asking them what their views are on display flying and their techniques and I've kind of picked a little bit out of each yeah. different person and tried to make what I do a balance of all of them and you read books and watch TV, and but it's not quite the same as actually going and talking to the guys that are at the coalface doing it. And that's a good point. Do you normally find most people are happy to share that kind of information? Yeah, some guys are a bit cagey, but most pilots are more than happy to share the information with you. And at the end of the day, we're out there to keep everything safe. That's a re safe is a really important point, but I think also there's another thing I, I find in my side of the job, which is about um, knowledge matching. You know, you come talk to someone. If you're talking at the right level, then they're very happy to talk to you. If you're asking, you know, how do you do those tumbles? Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. conversation is not going to go so yeah. well. Because certainly not going to ask yeah. <laughs> Keith about tumbling. And, <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know, yeah. yeah, those acrobatics that you fly. Um, and there's nothing wrong with being naive. We all learn, but. Um, the more knowledge you have, the more you, you, that opens doors too, doesn't it? You, you can talk to people with a degree of knowledge and they're prepared to add to your, your little pile of knowledge as you go on. It certainly would seem true to me. Even just outside of talking to the pilots, now having seen quite a few air shows, just even in the last year alone, each country you go to has different techniques. Yeah and different display methods um, and there's lots that you can pull from overseas air shows and bring them back home which is also a very valuable tool to have in the back pocket. Uh, absolutely and I, one of the things we're on a similar page I've travelled a lot as well not, not flown quite as many exciting aeroplanes as you have lucky man but that's great. Um, but uh, one of the things I find frustrating personally is that it is a global industry. Most uh, display pilots will sooner or later fly in a different country. We just mentioned Ray, Ray Hanna, Keith Skilling, um, Steve Deeth, lots of guys who have done displays in different countries around the world, and, and that's great. 
But even with that, it can be very insular. And one of the things I find frustrating, and I'm not putting words, not, not asking a question about this, but it, that, you know, oh, we do it this way, it works well for us. Yeah. Those guys over there, they don't do it so well. And I'm thinking of everybody in that. I've had that conversation yeah. in diff- North America and in, in Europe and Australasia. Yeah, I've, the flip side, I think, is that there's lots of great things we can learn from each other and also things to avoid doing as, as well. Um, so uh, we've kind of uh, we've been around that one a couple of times, but it'd be great if the listeners, if they're involved with their displays, go actually, could what could we do better? Where could we learn from and, and just pick that up? Would be a, a plea I'd make. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. I mean, as you say, there's every country has their ups and downs with as far as displaying the airplanes go. And at the end of the day, as a display pilot, you don't. I guess you've all got egos but you can't think about yourself you've got to think about the fact that you're displaying a piece of history and we're not displaying the aeroplanes for ourselves, we're displaying the aeroplanes to keep the history alive so if you kind of think about that then I don't think you can go too badly wrong and to take that point, you, you flew an aircraft at Stowe Mary, so you were in a historic place, in a historic, new historic aeroplane. That must have been, did you sort of feel, wow, this is one of those odd things that you just get to do? And when you're all dressed up in the yes. Level 1 flying jacket and the helmet and goggles, and you're in a, as authentic as you can get World War One aeroplane, with all the World War One buildings and everything, the scene really is just set. Yeah. You pretty much are back in World War One, and you s- start the engine up, and the puffs of smoke out the exhaust, and it's kind of sits in your mind. What would they have been thinking? Yeah. A hundred years ago, taking off from this field. It's like, yeah, it's. In their case, to attack yeah. zeppelins. Um, tragically, we don't have any air, air, air displayed zeppelins at the moment, but I wouldn't <laughs> be surprised the way the display scene's going. Dave, you've yeah. been very quiet. Have you got um, Yeah, well, but talk, talking about the making history and and remembering history at the same time, you were in the the nine ship Fokker for, formation with the eight Fokker DR ones and the Fokker D seven. D seven. That. That's the first time, as you said, um, that it, that nine Fokkers have been in the air together like that, um, eight triplanes since World War One, and you really didn't have a lot of time on the on that DR one at that stage, did you? And you were just sort of, just sort of thrown into the formation. That must have been quite an interesting event. Um, well, I was actually quite fortunate in a way that I. I think the guys had been planning on putting me in the formation from a fairly, well, from the few months prior to the airshow. So I did manage to get quite a few hours of formation flying in the triplane. I was very lucky I ended up with probably 10 or 12 hours in the triplane in three months, which is almost unheard of really for a vintage aviator aeroplane. Um, so in that way I was fairly well prepared for the display and when you look out off your wingtip and see the whole gaggle of triplanes just wombling through the sky I mean that's not just a solid stuck formation the whole thing is fluid it's you know it's going up and down and moving all over the place a triplane is a very twitchy little airplane so quite unstable 
and all planes really it's just yeah, unstable <laughs> so you're always on the ball trying to keep it straight and you're thinking well if, if we were going to get ambushed by a bunch of SE5s <laughs> I think this could end up in chaos real quick but it's it really does just throw you back 100 years ago and you just can't get that sight anywhere else in the world so no, no. and of course these are aircraft that James really likes because they, none of them have got radios <laughs> and, you, and you guys are doing all different types of formations during the display. So that's all done via hand signals? Yeah, so everything we do in the world of one aeroplanes is hand signals. So it looks a bit crazy when we're planning the flight to start with. We've got the hangar empty of aeroplanes yep. and we're walking through what's going to happen. But at the end of the day, things don't always go as planned. So having hand signals and procedures in place it certainly makes life a lot easier um the radios for display flying and formation work i haven't done a whole lot with radios but you hear it and it's like oh how simple is that yeah. and you, and it just takes you back to the world War one stuff again you just it's just a completely different challenge completely different everything about it is just different <laughs> and more of a challenge Actually, that's an interesting point because I've seen the, um, the 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 World War One display in New Zealand and also at Avalon um, as well, and and uh, that you, you guys have put on, and I think it's great. What I like about it is I can see two layers as a as a member of the public. I can see you know the cliched whirling sky full of aeroplanes, which is what you want to be putting on, and I would say here that I thought uh, the, the the vintage aviator display at Avalon uh, when you did get to fly when over the um, you managed to fill the whole flight line of with the, these little aeroplanes in a big airfield like uh, an international airport it's very easy to lose quite a large number of Fokkers <laughs> you know it's hard to fill the line you did that really well but there's an also another layer I could see there where you had the choreograph the planning and everyone is although it looks like a melee you're working in a separation heights and, and directions that you're travelling in which is good display flying good you've obviously that's been built up over time but the hand signal is on top the, the joke Dave's making of course is I think aviation was great up until they started putting radios in aircraft and it all went to pieces <laughs> it's a little bit of a joke but uh, there is an element where we make it over complicated radios are not complicated they are an asset but um, I've seen great vintage aircraft kept on the ground because the radio wasn't working and that, that shouldn't be a reason it's the aeroplane serviceable if the environment's right you know if it's a non-radio environment then they should be able to fly shouldn't they yeah we make the whole World War One displays look like a a complete mess when you're looking at it from a um, crowd angle yeah crowd angle but we've got it all planned so we've got three separate areas of the sky to fly in so we might have two or three aeroplanes in each section of the sky so the area closest to the uh, crowd and down the lowest we've got three or four aeroplanes and then we have a middle distance out from the crowd and say three or four hundred feet above the ground and then further away from that we have another three or four aeroplanes that are flying at 600 to 800 feet so you're looking up through the aeroplanes which gives the impression of a, a full sky but everything is separated. actually very well separated when we're flying it yeah and that's and that's great i mean it's theater it's choreographed as well which is going to thing people often overlook when you do put up a big display and the good displays are where that where that happens it's entertaining and it's safe and you know you know what you're doing um just in the general world of one flying you've flown the ferals d yeah, Faust D3, yeah. Fokker Triplane, 
and BE2. An R8? I haven't flown an RE8. I've been oh. in the back of the oh, RE8. Back of the RE8. Yeah. Yes, yes. They, you have to have um, you have to have baggage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you do. So you, um, so you were the ballast. Yeah, self-loading <laughs> ballast. Yes. And I'm very envious because I'd be very happy to fly in a in a, in a non-combat RE8 yeah, in the back. I definitely. wouldn't want to be flying flying combat. Although oh, no. I would say one of the fascinating things about researching the RE8 and, and talking to you, having flown in the back seat with the you know the scarf mounting with your your uh, Lewis gun. Um, is that it's amazing what some of the crews did achieve um, and anybody interested to, to read a, the shoot down account of, uh, of John Doigan who was shot down by a bunch of Fokkers over the western front and how he flew his aircraft down under fire um, he, was shot, uh, he was wounded several times fuel, um, bullets through the fuel tank fuel in the lap like it didn't catch fire and the, perhaps the punchline to that is his rigger fitter came out to um, recover the aircraft and they said he landed this aircraft badly shot up in a tiny little paddock and only this guy who was a very skilled pilot could have done that and you know so the skill can play a big part um the RAH did knock a fair number of other guys down too so um yeah I th- it, it's it's relearning some of this stuff it's experiencing it as well isn't it exactly and i think since we've got such authentic airplanes you really can go back to the dog fights of world war one so put a up with pup up next to a albatross yeah. and see what happened yeah. so they fly exactly like an original airplane and for example the pup it j- you can slow it right down and you can just turn on a dime right. and an albatross hasn't got a hope right. i think the only thing that you'd have on top of a pup is the fact that you can kind of zoom and you've yeah. got two spandau machine guns yeah. compared to the pups one yeah. i think that's the and that's a really good point you're making there because air combat, it's always being reinvented. The, the, the great schools of air combat at the, um, the Air Forces are saying, oh no, forget everything you've learned, this is all new. And then every, every major air combat where there's some kind of match, they learn the manoeuvring versus, versus um, zooming combat manoeuvres. Scissors is a modern, relatively modern 70s term, but that kind of attack goes back to World War I and so on. A couple of points I'd like to make and take your take on those is... Um, there are a couple of critical differences in a display of a combat situation at an air show, which is not, you know, it's choreographed, like we just said. Not, you don't get points if you shoot your mate yeah, down, yeah. however tempting it would be. <laughs> um, and, uh, and real combat, and the two things that come to mind is even in the first of all, they're flying up to 25, 30,000 feet on occasion without oxygen. Um, actually, that's no, a little high, isn't it? Yeah, yeah 20,000. 20,000, sorry, quite right. Yeah, so they were flying up to 20,000 feet um, without oxygen, and, and, and you're getting hypoxia and cold, um, frostbite, and all the rest of it. And then combat, obviously, that tended to come down. And the other key point is weights, um, often overlooked, that you, know, you have a fully armed aircraft, it's a bomber with bombs, um, guns. Um, non-replica guns and full ammunition um, sometimes crew are wearing more equipment and there's a lot more actual equipment in an aircraft World War Two or well, World War One radios for transmitting mm. you've got a whole different yeah. weight thing going on yeah um, how would you think about flying, flying one of these replicas at 20,000 feet well you really do have to put yourself back in the day so you got all of your clothes on with a big heavy flying jacket those jackets are huge and they are ridiculously heavy if you're in a european winter so imagine it's minus 10 15 on the ground so it's going to be minus 40 or even colder at 20,000 feet so as well as trying to keep awake with hypoxia you're fighting the cold you barely move your hands and just (laughs) be almost it would be torture you 
fingers would be just yeah, it'd be horrible. Plus, you're also on the lookout for any enemy out there as well. I mean, exactly. There's always going to be someone out there trying to shoot you down. Yeah, so. Yeah. And it could it could be a uh, spot of oil on the goggles, but equally it could be someone coming in hard and fast. That's fascinating. Do you find uh, the castor oil effect? Um, you know, after you've been flying these things, as it like they say, for the World One was. My only experience with castor oil per se is um, I've had a little bit of dual flying in our Avro 504 which has got a rotary engine and the <laughs> all the stories that you hear about castor oil going all over your face um, I have certainly seen it happen and <laughs> I haven't heard of the repercussions of it but <laughs> you, yeah, enough said <laughs> yeah <laughs> For those that may not uh, not be aware, uh, castor oil was used in the first war as a as a lubricant in the total loss oil systems on on rotary engines, and apparently it has a shall we say lubricating effect on the pilots too, as the stories go. The other story that goes is that pilots swore the only possible cure was a very stiff tot of whiskey, but I think that says more about pilots than it does about medical history. <laughs> do you do a lot of uh, reading up of um, World War One stories and and uh, the actual accounts of the day? Do, do you get really into that personally? Um, I have read not I would say not a lot but I have read quite a bit of the accounts from World War One, and when you read about air battles and the different pilots and how they went through their training and got into combat you almost think well how did you manage to jump into a sop with camel with like less than 10 hours flying experience I jumped when I got into the BE2 for the first time it was an original aeroplane it's the only one left only original BE2F left in the world and our one obviously flies so you think I was nervous enough just doing that (laughs) Yes. I mean and I got like 1100 hours flying experience compared to them with (laughs) like 5 that's just everything's different. We know a lot more about the aeroplanes now than they did back then. That's a that's a very interesting point. I mean, yeah, there's a degree on the one hand they didn't know what they were getting themselves in for, so they just gave it a go and, and killed a lot of young men um, as a result, and those that survived um, uh, were, were learning fast or, or not. Um, but I think also one of the things that, that uh, the Vintage Aviator has done and other organisations, Shuttleworth is an element too, um, is particularly for the First World War, is, is killing the myths and actually uh, looking at the way aircraft really do fly. I mean, we know a lot more about aircraft. Aerodynamics is the same through history, through the world, you know, the, the lifting surface lifts. Um, yet we do la- allow myths to grow up about how certain aircraft are death traps because of this or that particular characteristic and relearning some of those things. The R8 again, for instance, had, a, had a, some very nasty characteristics in its early flying. I think a lot of that was poor understanding at the time um, and significant problems. They're things you do not do with an RE8, exactly. but it's perhaps not as dangerous as, as they taught it to be. And also, a lot of those flying accounts weren't written like the day after they happened. Yeah. They were written years after. Yeah. And what happened on the day and when you remember it years later can often be two different things. So uh, to be able to put a, a lot of myths to bed per se I think is quite an interesting experience as well 
Do, do you ever, or, or other guys in, uh, who fly for the collection, do you ever just take up a, a couple of the aircraft and do a proper dogfight, not not a display type dogfight, but actually fly them like you were trying to actually shoot each other down to see just to see the limits? Yeah, uh, the example I gave before about the pup and the albatross, that was a, a dogfight, yeah. and it literally just ended up in a turning battle, and the pup was just, it was turning just on a dime, and the albatross had no chance. But, but if you'd been over the German lines in the pup, you would have eventually had to cut and run, and then the albatross exactly would have had a shot at you. Oh, that's an unusual sound in New Zealand. <laughs> yeah. What was it, thunder? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. For those not uh, hearing, that was obviously a high-speed pass, but I think a F-18 just arrived. It's all downhill from here. <laughs> I think they just had the cast royal effect on me. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that's, that's really interesting. You know, again, you've got to factor in what you can do with the aircraft, and, and that's a great argument. You get a lot um, with... Uh, People talking about aircraft, you know, is the measurement 109E better than the Mark 1 Spitfire? And, you know, they're comparing like five, five kilometer an hour, five mile an hour differences yeah. as being an advantage. And at that point, you're obviously different into aircraft, uh, pilot training situation more than that. And that's the thing at the end of the day. We get very excited about aircraft, but you win wars by having more than the enemy and, and, and rolling training. them up and better training. Absolutely. You know, that was the area where the Allies won in the Second World War. Um, the first war, the training was not so good. Um, pretty tough. I think I've run out of questions, Dave. Yeah, yeah I think we all want to go out and see what's flying yeah, around yeah. out there. So two out of three. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you can go to go wherever you want to go. Yeah, I'll just watch in the background. <laughs> Thank so, you very much, Bevan. It's yeah. been great to catch up with you again Likewise, and, yes, and uh, have a good another good chat about your flying and. Um, open up a lot more than what we did in the, last, in the last interview for the live show so yeah absolutely and I'd just like to say well, I wasn't in, involved in the last interview but really good to chat to you great we've, uh, we've crossed paths a few times but I think you'd probably want to back up that if you're interested, a young person interested in aviation work hard get involved and exactly. make it happen and that's probably a yeah. great note to finish on yeah. <laughs> at the Thank end of the day much. you make your own destiny so yes. Yes. And, and let's also hope that we see you a lot more in the coming season than your chipmunk at the air shows and, and actually flying some displays. Yeah, I'd love to be. Oh, fingers crossed. Make it happen. <laughs> Thank Great. you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Cheers. We're here at Tamora with very well-known Australian author and historian and aviation writer, Stuart Wilson. Hi, Stuart. Hi, how are you going? Great, great. What have you thought of the air show? Oh, it's wonderful because this is the third one that they've done here at Tamora and each one gets better. The lineup of aircraft has just been fantastic. We've seen some new things. The Corsair, for example, that was a bit of a highlight of the show. Definitely. Um, really great to see. And it just keeps getting better and better. It's beautifully organised. The weather <laughs> improved considerably from the Friday to the Indeed. Saturday. Yeah. And uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it as always. It's always a pleasure to come to Tamora. Right, and uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background, how you got into aviation writing and, and aviation in, in general? Aviation writing purely by accident, which is of course what happens a lot of times. Aviation in general, I'll give you the story. I was four years old, the Avro Vulcan came to Australia. Oh, 1956, so that tells you how old I am. <laughs> um, it overflew our house in Sydney and my dad said, look at that, and I went, oh well. <laughs> he took me out to Sydney Airport the next day 
where you could look at it. And I still remember walking around the side of the hangar and this huge white thing in front of me. And that was the end of me. Wow. <laughs> okay, so that was the Vulcan effect that was way back then. And, the, uh, and that was the Vulcan that some may remember crashed at Heathrow. That's right, on, yes. When it was going back to England. Right, because it had come, come all the way to New Zealand and then going, going back through. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. And I'd done a tour of the area. So that's what got me started on aeroplanes. Um, writing uh, was... I, I'd always been able to write, but... Um, I was involved in the music industry actually, I'm a musician by training, oh, right. and, um, but I'd always been able to write, just one thing led to another and I got sick of the music industry and started writing and here I am. <laughs> Did you uh, learn to fly? or? Yes, I yep. got my PPL when yep. I was 17. Okay. Where else did you do that? In Sydney. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, the Royal Aero Club of New South Wales as, as it existed then, okay. in a beagle pup. Oh, oh right. wow, yeah. Cool. And did you do a lot of flying back then? Yeah, most of my flying was back then, actually. I'm, I'm not terribly current at the moment. Right, it's the yeah, old yeah. story, not, yeah. you know, time and money. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I flew a fair bit in the 70s and uh, into the 80s, but still do, but uh, yeah. not as often as I'd like to. Right. And I think one of the things I'd like to chip in here is that, uh, I'm, I'm, on the one hand, I can say I'm a bit younger, but, uh, yes, yeah, the same sort of intro into aviation and uh, uh, rider myself now. But... Um, I think everybody in Australasia, certainly in Australia, will be very familiar with Stuart's books. But for those outside Australia who are not, um, back uh, many, many years ago now, Stuart did a series of pretty much definitive works in their day on uh, the, the key Australian military types, and there were always three aircraft to a book. Um, I have a complete collection, and Stuart was just telling me about how he had a lot of people coming up the weekend saying, I've got a complete collection, or I'm missing one. And I think that it's easy to overblow books, but these are essentials, uh, always being regarded as essentials for people studying Australian military aviation. They're, they're a great series. Um, they're not perfect. Nobody's books are perfect. Mine certainly aren't, but they, they've got a huge and huge amount of information, and they're really a bedrock along what a lot of people like myself um, base a lot of our writing and research today. So I'd like to sort of you know put in the podcast that uh, big thanks to Stuart for the work he did back in the day, and that was pre-internet and uh, yes. <laughs> letters and yes. It was the real, when you had real communications. <laughs> it's, it's interesting, that series of books. I, I suppose it, you could say it's the one that made me, because there were 13 books in that series, wow. and, and uh, we were doing one every six months. That must have been really it, hard. Yeah, work. that's why I'm, I'm really only 12 years old. I just work so hard, I just look, look 190. <laughs> but it's interesting, the, the reaction continues, as you just said. Yeah. People still refer to them as the sort of standard reference, and I use them all the time myself, yeah. so... Yeah. You'd look back and think, oh, maybe I should have done this differently, but, yeah. you know, that applies to anything you Absolutely. do, doesn't it? Yeah. So, as soon as you put the book out, yep. you spot the typo, and you know, <laughs> it's a traditional author's game, is you open the book after you've read it probably six or seven times to proofread it, and you open it, falls open, and then you spot a typo on a page. I've heard so many people, I know it happened to me. Here's, here, here's a little anecdote. that I, I'm a bit of a pedant when it comes to grammar and spelling and yeah, which is stuff like skill that. for yeah. us. Well, yes. yeah, but a lot of people not so much don't these days, regard sadly, it as... Yes. But I do. And my father was also a bit of a pedant when it came to that sort of thing. So I used to put in those books a um, some sort of deliberate mistake. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a split infinitive. That, was, yeah, yeah, that yeah. was the thing we usually did. So I'd put it in there for him. Yeah. So he'd read the book and he'd read me... He'd say, I found it. <laughs> Except it usually wasn't the one that it was, was in there oh, deliberately. Yes, it was a genuine, it was yes. a genuine one. Actually, that's a funny little story. Um, apparently it used to be very common, I believe it still is, that map makers put in um, little errors in the, in the cartography so that if someone steals the map, um, they can prove copyright. But, it's ah, actually their work. Yes, um, so yes. I'm, that's all my mistakes are obviously uh, copyright uh, yes, attempts. And, uh, yes, and, 
Yeah, and like mine, all of them deliberate. <laughs> they are. But yeah, those books, that's, so that's uh, I mean, you know, 13 books, six months of a, a book, three aircraft types. I mean, we all know, I think, that to research a single aircraft type is challenging. Some of them are obviously very well documented, but a lot of what, when Stuart was doing it, uh, a lot of the do- documentation wasn't easily available back then. Well, a lot of it was, uh, I found the myths and errors were mm. being perpetuated from book to book because yep. people were just referring to the previous book. I tried very hard to go back to basic research. So a lot of stuff in my books attracted some criticism. You're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Because we it, all know. Yeah, because yeah. it was contrary to what had previously been published. And it got to the stage after about the third one where I knew what to expect, so I had the replies ready. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, this isn't me saying, hey, aren't I wonderful? But that's just the way I wanted to do it, yeah. because I found errors right from the start. So did, did you go back um, to archives and spend a lot of time in archives, pulling out the original documents and going through? Yes, yeah, yeah. To, uh, the RAF historical section, um, a fellow called David Wilson, who used to run it, um, no relation. He and I spent an awful lot of time together, and he opened up the archives for me. Dave Gardner at the RAF Museum was also very very helpful I mean at that stage they didn't know me from a bar of soap I was I was a new boy yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, I got help from some of the pilots uh, you know Dick Cresswell and guys like that when they were still alive Bobby Gibbs that's actually an interesting question because um, cold will even wow <laughs> yeah and back then those guys were obviously a lot younger and most of them are no longer with us uh, indeed today um, but one of the things I found is researching um, a lot of the even aside from wartime propaganda a lot of the um, air force or the Australian Defence Forces own accounts of what they did and when and with what is really pretty dodgy um, I'm not not saying they're doing bad things but you can't rely on it and, you, and for a lot of people who aren't in this game would go, oh yeah, you go to the Air Force and ask them and, and actually a lot of it is, is, is way off beam and you have to cross-check and actually look at the original documents about what happened rather than the, the Air Force's version of events that yeah, came that, out Yeah, that's certainly them. true and, and even, you know, there's the official histories, then there's the official diaries, then there's the squadron yeah. uh, diaries and all that sort of stuff and usually between the three of them you can piece it yeah. together pretty yeah. well, yeah. but it takes a hell of a lot of time and effort, yeah. that's yeah, the thing. So that's why I was finding it after about the fifth book, yeah. thinking, bloody hell, you know, yes. <laughs> I've got to keep this going for a bit longer. But right. I did. And, and by then you had a big, big expectation. I mean, people were seeing this as a series. I think you announced the forthcoming ones, yes. so didn't you, yes. and, and, and the, in the backs of the books. And, um, yeah, you, you, in a way you made a rod for your own back, but we're <laughs> grateful because uh, uh, nobody else has done anything quite like it. There's been some great books on Australian aviation history, but type histories, Australian only, are, are very rare. Um, and I, th- I, you know, I find it a hard work. A lot of the research and work we have to do, but the idea of doing it when you, back when you were doing it and having the travel costs and the, having to wait for letters and everything else, you know, very hard. That was a whole. It was quite a lengthy process. But I, I do need to say one thing. I do, do need to pay tribute to Jim Thorne, right. um, who was the publisher of uh, the books right. uh, through Australian Aviation Magazine, which I also used to write for. Uh, he took the punt. And on it, and he was great. He left. I came up with the idea, yep. and he left it to me to get on with it. Okay, that's great. And I said, I think we can make this a financial success, and it was. He, he yeah. made a lot of money out of it, oh, <laughs> which, but which is fine. Um, and, and and to his credit, he just let me get on with it. So I I came did the concept, the organisation, yep. yep. the whole the whole bit basically, and he just stood back and 
let me do it. What sort of numbers were the, um, each book published? And uh, you know, are they quite rare now? Are they hard oh, to get? Very, a lot of several of them will change hands for significant sums of money, and um, some of them are very hard to track down. You can find them. You know, they do appear because you did do a, a good print run, I think. But um, I, I wouldn't let mine go. People, yeah, <laughs> people hang on to them. The, the, the sales, I'm not going to give you the numbers, but they, they were healthy, right, yeah. um, uh, including some overseas. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, people tend to hang on to them. And uh, most of them become available now when it's an estate. Oh, okay, right, yeah, yeah, when that a, makes sense. When an older person We used to get away. some of them uh, come through our bookshops, and I, I know I picked up one or two of them. Um, I've got the one with the Hudson, that's my, one of my favourite aircraft. And, yes. Um, you know, it's really valuable even from someone not particularly interested in the Royal Australian Air Force, but in the type. Yes. Uh, I picked up a lot of good information and knowledge through through that book. Um, but yeah, the, I, can, I can definitely see that they'll be a, re a good reference even now and for the future I can see why they would be collectible. It's, it's funny, one of the people that came to see me at the show here, he found a complete set of, uh, as a mixture of hard covers and soft covers, and he paid $20 each for them. Right. He couldn't believe his luck because otherwise he'd be paying hundred, $200 each for them. Wow. And it was just happened upon it, and the person who had them didn't really, you know, was the grandson of the original owner, and they yeah. didn't really know. Yeah, yeah. And he said, "Yeah, I'll take those. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'm actually, out of here." Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's the kind of thing that people can go knives drawn with those. Like, oh, you've got to go. Oh, I'll have those off you and stuff. Um, I, I know the answer to this one, I think, but we'll ask it for the for the listeners. Um, would you Would you do new editions? <sighs> I'd like to be able to. The and we've already done new versions of a couple of them, but not the three in one, just separate yeah, aircraft. Yeah. I think we did new versions of the Neptune one and the uh, Catalina right, one, yes, yes. which is basically an updated version of what's in the original books. There's two problems. Firstly, time, because I've now got Aero Australia magazine, which we publish and I'm the editor of, which is taking up 25 hours a day, eight days a week. Yes. Because it's actually five years since I last wrote a book, which was the Tony Gay's right. biography. Yeah, I just is. haven't had time. Yeah, yeah. So the short answer is yes, I'd love to. The lengthier answer is I don't know when I'm going to be able to, but we're always looking at it right. because we're getting requests all the time. Well, that's it. It's probably the most we, perennial question. We would have to do completely new versions of them because even though I own the copyright to the words, the publication, you know, the layout and design, yeah, everything's yeah. owned by... Somebody else. So we'd have to do new ones, but we want to anyway to, You'd want to, to, to you? freshen yeah. them up. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I haven't so, really answered the question, have I? <laughs> no, no, that was the kind of answer. And, and, you know, anybody who would like to send a huge cheque to pay for this process Absolutely. would be um, to send it to Aero Australia. And that's a great lead-in. I mean, obviously, uh, since the books, you're, you're much more doing the magazine side of things. And um, um, this is quite funny because uh, Stuart and I are competitors, but friendly competitors <laughs> working for different Very magazines. Very friendly. Indeed. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, your uh, magazines and, and the whole business. Well, the Aero Australia, we started, God, it's 12 years ago. Wow. <laughs> the, 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 we went to press with the first one in, dis, in uh, the end of November 2003. This is really depressing talking about this. Cause everything, <laughs> everything's ages ago. Well, look, you're still here after. <laughs> yeah, this That's is That's the way to look at it. Uh, originally, uh, we, we were given the opportunity to ask, would, would I like to start an aviation magazine? And I'd, I'd been doing stuff for Australian aviation for 18 years or 19 years. I was like, okay, what the hell, we'll give it a go. Now, we didn't own the publication initially, but we do now. Right. Uh, it changed hands a couple of times to private equity investment 
publishers, and so we've basically saved it from them. It's a horrible thing. Oh, the flip side of yes. what you were just saying about having a backer who lets you get on with it is that most backers don't, and they yeah. have very clear views about how you should do it. And generally speaking, they have really bad and, ideas, and they don't. They very rarely fit in with what yeah. I would regard as a good. A lot, so, of, a lot anyway. of magazines have been killed by bright ideas in the background. So now. the bottom line is, Wendy and I now own it, and nothing's changed as far as the editorial side of things. Uh, it's my baby. Let's face it. I created it, and uh, I'm eventually going to have to let it go, but not just yet. Yeah. Well, I think um, you know, speaking as a competitor, it's a great magazine, um, and you've got a very strong style and format. You've got a good, a good roster of good names who, who provide you a good material. I think. Um, I never get to see with your magazine who's late and who's who's has to be chased around. I'm sure there's a bit of that, and we're not going to ask you that. Um, but uh, I it's, think you just did. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's a it's a challenge putting these magazines together. People see it on the newsstand and they go, "Oh, this is nice," and there's a bit of coverage on my favourite thing, and they're very happy. But they don't know the hard work that goes on behind it, and that is something we both very much know. Well, we have a work we have a staff too. Yes. Yeah. That's um, me and my wife. And, yeah, uh, yeah. And but that's the case for many of the magazines, there, isn't it? Out yeah, there, people absolutely. don't realise. Absolutely, and that's the point I'd pick up on there, I'd love to know what Stuart thinks, is that we're in a very interesting time now. I think 10 years ago, I would have said that print magazines as we have them now would have been dead by now in 2015, if you'd asked me in 2005. We have a, a, a good range, Australia has an excellent range of aviation magazines, per, per capita I think one of the best in the world. We have more aviation magazines in Canada. Than, which with a much larger population. Yeah, we've probably it's, got too many actually. But anyway. And that's an idea yeah, point, yes, we may have too many, there's a lot of overlap. Having said that, um, from the reader's point of view, there's an excellent choice uh, available. And we, like I just said, we're still here, and I think a lot of people would have bet with the books and with the magazines, we wouldn't be doing these sorts of things. I, I think there will always be a market for print. Yep. I think as far as periodicals like mags are concerned, they, it will go to a certain level, then it will stabilise. Yep. Because so many people, including me, like to have the the, hard copy. the, 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 cop, the feel yeah. of the hard copy. And it's interesting, a lot of young people are starting to think the same way with publications. There, yes. a Digital will increase, but the, the digital proportion of the market at the moment is very small. Right. It's tiny, in fact, in, in our field anyway. Okay. Okay. We do have a digital version, but it's probably not even 10% of the... Numbers, yeah, yeah. That, that would be the same in a lot of other magazines yeah. too. Yeah. So it's interesting with the technology, how things go around in circles. Again, just referring back to my music thing. Yeah. When I was involved in all of that, we were recording on tape, of course, and then the digital stuff came in. Yeah. And there was this feeling of the lack of warmth with the digital thing, and there were certain things you couldn't do with digital that you could do with tape, tape okay. with analog. Yeah. And it's interesting how many artists are now going back to recording. On yeah. tape again, and and not just like the retro guys, like you know, as a no, printer, no, the just because modern of the guys. thing, because yeah. it's a technological yeah. advantage. Because yeah. they've worked out that well, I've, I've had this theory for years with the music that my ideal situation for recording would be to um, record analog and, and do the uh, mastering and mixing digital, get digital, the best of both yeah, 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 yeah. And that's what's happening. So there is in publishing and other fields, there's this reevaluation of what digital the advantages really are. Right. I think that's, that's a really, I find that really interesting. So, uh, one of the things I find um, when people talk to me about digital and print with magazines and books, obviously, you know, I, I, I like the digital element, but the print is, a, is where, where I started from and what I would like to continue to do. 
And I think it's a bit like the relationship between um, cinema and TV and, and home media, shall we call yeah. it. You know, it used to be tapes and then DVDs and now it's streaming and so on. Which is that they'd all be very happy if the other two disappeared. But they all depend on each other. You know, cinema now really depends on revenue raised through TV and, and, and through um, uh, home entertainment. Um, the other two need cinema to make the big blockbuster cornerstones of their business, which wouldn't otherwise happen. Yeah. And I'm hoping that that's what we'll see with... Um, with the magazine and book business is that we'll have a strong digital element and it's great because there's lots of stuff you can do as you just said with music digitally that you can't do on a print one conversely I think we still need print and we will probably need it in the future forever but you, you look at the number of books aviation books still being published in the conventional way huge, I've, I've got number. I've got had five of them come into my office in the last month yeah. for review right. all printed yeah. all proper in inverted commas books yeah, yeah. That's, that's so, absolutely right and so it ain't dead <laughs> yeah no definitely not dead and um and far from 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 down because there's I'd, I'd argue there's probably more variety in smaller numbers being published with aviation books would you agree with that i Jim? would yeah absolutely um, um, which, which is great because we're getting stuff it's kind of flip side of where we started with your books we're getting stuff covered now that 10 years ago again i'd have said no nobody's going to do a book on that it's too you know too limited an area and there's some amazing special i mean biographies obviously is one area but just some of the aircraft types and um, uh, unit histories units that you'd never would have thought would have got a, got coverage and people are passionate about a particular aircraft type artifact or a Know, airfields of East Anglia or all these amazing things. You've got a lot of the, the self-publishing thing yes. happening now too. Uh, ego publishing as I sometimes call it. Yep. <laughs> and some of these publications are actually very good yep. and some of them are absolute rubbish. Because um, there's, nev- there's never been a proper editor involved or a yep. proper writer involved and you think, oh God, why have they bothered? But some of them are excellent. And, and as you said, they cover subjects that normally you wouldn't think of as being covered in mainstream. And if they're yeah. done well, they yeah. certainly have a place. And I'd, I'd put appeal, an appeal in here, and I, I'm sure Stuart would back me up, is if you are looking at self-publishing something, please talk to a small aviation publisher and get them to help you with it because too many great ideas have been ruined by someone trying to do it all on their own. And as someone who's actually worked in all aspects of the book trade, and Stuart as well, there's more to it than meets the eye in terms of cleaning stuff up. And a lot of it's invisible. Good editing should be invisible. Absolutely. People don't realise until they read something that's badly edited how important an editor's role and the proofreader role is. I uh, can't handle badly written, badly edited copy I'm afraid because it just goes against the grain for, somebody, very hard for, for someone who writes for a living <laughs> yeah. and, and we try to do it properly don't yes, we? Exactly. Sometimes you just want to pick the bloody thing up and chuck it out the window yeah. <laughs> set it on fire. It's not therapeutic to use your red pen or anything no. and, and, and it's sad because... No, more violence is required. <laughs> As Stuart said there's some great books that people have done terrific jobs with publishing themselves and I tip my hat to them definitely there's a lot more in the middle ground which is great ideas badly executed and I just wish they'd had you know more help and advice and yes, sadly, there's a few at the very bottom too, which just were probably not worth doing at all. But yeah, if, if you know, and a lot of us are very interested in helping people, and there's there's ways of doing these things rather than just doing it all on your own. We're available at very reasonable rates to <laughs> to do whatever editing you require of us. <laughs> Maybe you'd like to say, um, going back to the magazine, a little bit about what Aero Australia is and what you think and, and promote as the sort of its strengths and, and areas of, of um, specialisation for the people who are not perhaps familiar with it. Well, it reflects my interest in aviation basically which is everything that flies right. apart from UAVs <laughs> <laughs> everybody's got something they won't touch haven't they? <laughs> a wonderful story about the fellow in America with a UAV flying into his backyard with a camera so he got his baseball bat and Whopped belted it. the hell <laughs> yes. out of it and he got oh. cheers from around yep, the world I would yes. do the same only I'd use a cricket bat <laughs> um, it, it's got a bit of old a bit of new a bit of military a bit of commercial a bit of GA whatever um, a nice mixture and the comments that we got from our readers who saw us 
over the air show weekend uh, confirm what I always thought I got it pretty right yeah they, yeah. they like it and basically what I do is um, I work on the basis I did with my books too would I buy it myself right. yeah and if the answer is yep yeah, okay Yep, I'd agree with that. Yep. And, and also, uh, do you find it interesting? I mean, there's a, yes. there's a danger with some uh, publications, and I'd certainly say Stuart's is not among them, that the thing is just boilerplate. You know, here's a story about the Spitfire. And, in, you know, it doesn't matter if it's a first-time reader. It's just boring because it's the same fundamental, and it's finding the telling the story in new ways or finding new bits. And yeah, so, sometimes you do have to do the, the old stuff again, but uh, if you can find a new way of presenting it, that's fine. And, of course, in our case, we put a great deal of heat on the quality of the illustrations in the, yeah, in I was the just publication say, too. Yeah, very strong on the, on the picture front. So there's no reason why you can't have pretty pictures and good words. Yeah. Yeah. And I've always had that philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of publications in the past have said you could have one or the other, but you can't have both. Well, yeah. I think that's rubbish. There's no good reason, really. <laughs> yes. um, and I think um, you know, you, you, you've um, always had that timeline of, of, of dates, I think, haven't you, with, with events. Um, so, you know, significant dates in aviation history, that, that makes my brain explode because I, I only notice anniversary when someone tells me it's the anniversary <laughs> on the day, so looking ahead is too hard. But that's terrific. How, it are, you, how about, are you with your wedding anniversary? Yeah, I'm good with that. That's, that one's a very that's just one. as well. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, but yes, it, it, it's nice to have. And it, you, I think one of the things you've done is you've been very consistent with that, with the magazine. It's very strong, nice print quality, the, very well illustrated, good good uh, content, um, and you've kept it very strong and the same throughout. Which again is, I think, uh, there's a danger to want to change for changes. Yeah, I, I don't uh, agree with that. There, there has been some evolution of. Yeah. but it's been very small you probably haven't even noticed it but we're just making little tweaks here and there but change for change sake is something in any field I've always disliked yeah. 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 so you won't find me doing that right that's good to hear I like that <laughs> um, yeah so it's a fa- been a fascinating career I mean we, as I said at the beginning we really owe you a big thanks for really kicking a lot of the Australian writing off there are the books that came before you and um, there will be books after we're all gone too, I hope. But, um, Just don't describe me as venerable. Okay, <laughs> definitely, definitely not venerable. Yes. <laughs> quite an interesting tag. So what other sort of uh, aviation things would you perhaps like to tell us about in your, in your past or... Oh, well, it's just the fact that I've always been involved in it one way or the other. When I was working in the music industry, the music was paying for the flying. Yep, yep. I got involved in motor racing as well, and that's how I met. My wife, oh, Wendy, who right. you yes, know, she's, yes, indeed. Uh, she's, she, she was a motor racer. Um, so I had the two most expensive hobbies you can imagine. Say, <laughs> obviously, you were just working your way up to yachting or something. <laughs> <weren't you? laughs> Luckily, I was never into that. <laughs> yeah. But uh, with aviation and motor racing, the old joke about $50 notes and throwing them yeah. into the breeze applied. But that was okay. So we did that. And um, then I decided to get out of the music industry. And uh, my first writing work was editor of a motor racing magazine. Okay, oh, yeah. Right. yeah. Um, racing Car News in Sydney. And I wrote a couple of books on motor racing as well in the meantime while I was still working in the music oh, industry. Right. And they yeah. gradually evolved. And the, the, the aviation thing was always the first, my first love. Yeah. So, and a, well, a bit of a fluke, really. I, I rang up uh, Jim Thorne at Australian yeah. Aviation yeah. to see if I could borrow some Spitfire photographs for a little booklet I was putting together and it turned out that Jim was a motor racing nut as well and uh, he had seen me race we'd been, and yep, yep. but we never actually met oh, yes, this is way, yes. way before the, the yes, book started yes. so he said oh would you like to do some stories for Australian aviation this is in 1982 or something yep, like that yep. he said yeah right. <laughs>
And that's the Excellent. thing. Is, uh, I went from there. Yeah. Um, I, I often get asked. I'm sure you get asked. You know, how do you get? How do you get to be having so much fun out on the pan? I'm going. This is the job. I'm enjoying myself. But there's also a lot of stuff you don't see, which is the, the 2 a.m., 4 a.m. This is actually work. Yes, exactly. <laughs> how do you get into that? Well, actually, a lot of it is getting getting the graft. I think one of the mistakes people make. I wonder what your take is, Stuart. Is they think, oh, I'll get a really fancy camera and I'll take some pictures of warbirds and then I'll send them into the magazines and they'll love me and I'll become incredibly rich and famous very quickly. Well, firstly, you're not going to become rich whatever you do unless you're very, very cleverer than us, um, or me at least. And secondly, um, it's not about the cameras. Yeah, clever something else. (laughs) It's not about the cameras, but it's actually reporting stuff. And it might be with photographs, it might be with text. But if you start, as Stuart's just said, and my history is somewhat similar, writing and publishing, small, different areas. But once people see you around and they see that you can do something, you'll get more opportunities. And as the opportunities increase, the opportunities go further and further. Would you agree with that? I would. I've got a a basic um, gang of contributors, photographers and writers, that are mostly people I've known for a long time because I'm always more comfortable working with people with whom I'm familiar. Yeah. Now, I know you have to start somewhere with yes. them, but that's that's the way I am. We get a lot of people sending in photographs uh, on spec, and s- sometimes I've used them if it's been something particular yeah. that I needed. But uh, what you say about you know getting rich and famous from... Uh, <laughs> Hell, the publishers certainly don't get rich and famous. No, so <laughs> the photographers have got no chance. Yeah. But there are some people you come across, and the guys I use regularly, they've, they've got an eye. Yes. And they just have the knack of capturing whatever it is they want to capture just right. And we've got a bit, maybe three of those. And I use them as much as I can. One of them was here this weekend, actually. Yeah. Um, and that's a really good point is it's um, you know banging off the shots is easy it's getting yourself into the right place at the right time for the right shot I've missed a lot of shots I missed shots yesterday that I should have got that and this isn't a sort of fisherman tail element this is saying that even with the experience I've got which is more than average um, I miss things Um, but the good guys are the ones who capture the shot and the other thing that goes with that and I think Stuart's taking this as a given and one of the reasons he works with these people is you want to work with people who are reliable mm, and absolutely. trustworthy yep. and they're going to deliver on time. The most important thing with magazine business is you get the stuff in on time and you don't stress your editor. The people, yeah, that's the first thing, never off the editor. Um, <laughs> yes. um, the people who understand the meaning of the word deadline yeah. are treasured and that's why I've got the people I have because they just about all do. They, they deliver when you need yeah. it and, and that's the thing with a magazine you can't you can't run late um, it does happen with magazines and eventually you have bigger problems and structural problems in that way um, but uh, you need to make sure that you're reliable and I'd rather have someone who's more pedestrian but reliable than someone who's flashy and doesn't deliver when I need it I, would you agree with that? Absolutely <laughs> and you just occasionally you fluke and get one who's both yes, but yes. not very often and but that's the, the names you see around I think um the names you see regularly in Stuart's magazines, the names I see in magazines and so on I write for, they're there not because they're lucky guys or um, they're mates, because they're reliable. Anyway, well, thank you very much uh, for this talk, Stuart. It's been great to catch up again. And, oh, likewise, um, thank you. Hear a bit of background. And, um, hopefully, hopefully we'll see you again in New Zealand. Oh, just, oh, we'll, be, we'll be there. I don't think we're going to get to Wanaka next year, but we'll certainly be at a marker in 17. Great right. show, isn't it? Oh, it's great. Terrific, yeah.
I, I like the marker. I just like the whole thing. So we'll be there. Excellent. Yeah. So we can so come and I. annoy you. <laughs> Brilliant. And thank you and very teach much. You, teach and you how to say Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> no, really terrific to have a bit of a chat, compare notes, and to, to pay tribute to uh, one of our pioneers. Thank you very much, yeah. Joe. Thank you.